Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to a bonus episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Theolyn Arduzzi, an editor here at the TLS. The article you're about to listen to, part of a series of long reads taken from the TLS, is narrated by the team at NOAA, News Over Audio. You can listen to more TLS articles on the TLS website and in the NOAA app. You're listening to the TLS. This is When the Flawed Succeed. Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings and the Corrosion of Morals by Rory Stewart, a senior fellow at the Jackson Institute at Yale University from the issue of August 20th, 2021. Niccolò Machiavelli taught that politics is an alien universe, unstable and inconsistent, dominated by chance, in which appearance, not reality, defines success. It does not matter who politicians really are. What matters is how people perceive them. Because public opinion is fickle, politics a gamble and the political universe unstable, successful leaders need minds that change with fortune and changing circumstances. And because, in his words, people are ungrateful, fickle, feigners and dissemblers, the politician must necessarily also be a great feigner and dissembler. Dishonesty, and indeed any other immoral conduct, is justified for Machiavelli, provided that it leads to dominion over a powerful state. The end justifies the means, or in Italian, accusandolo il fatto lo fetto lo scusi. My own experience suggests that Machiavelli was right about the characteristics that typically help a politician acquire power but he failed to acknowledge that when those characteristics become ingrained, they undermine the capacity to use that power well. Many of my contemporaries in the House of Commons, where I was a Conservative MP from 2010 to 2019, agreed with Machiavelli. As in a tiny Renaissance state, no one felt safely in power. 
they felt obliged to swim in a sea of public opinion, composed of the prejudices and illusions of millions of other minds, whose impossible winds and currents were whipped up by the media, especially social media. They emphasised the importance of chance, image and risk in politics. They felt that their permanent campaign to take and retain power was not only a necessary, but almost the only content of political life. This was true even of intelligent, able politicians. David Cameron often seemed to prefer to promote ministers with a convenient public image rather than those who governed well or who had knowledge or experience of a particular portfolio. Although he was instinctively doubtful about the Iraq and Afghan interventions, he appeared reluctant to master the details, interrogate the counterinsurgency strategy, or criticise, even when in opposition. From the Labour side, Sadiq Khan seemed to want to be a largely ceremonial mayor of London, emphasising the limits of his budget and power rather than asserting responsibility for housing, transport and crime or taking action. All could take comfort from the fact that inaction and lack of conviction were not punished by electors. Other would-be leaders, perceiving public opinion in terms of random eruptions of sentiment which needed to be addressed through a game of whack-a-mole, concluded that they had no option other than to contradict themselves. This general tendency was, of course, most blatant in Boris Johnson who, when it seemed necessary to make promises to Northern Irish Unionists to destroy Theresa May's Brexit deal and then to break those same promises to make a new deal with the EU, concluded, like Machiavelli, that he could not keep his word. Nor should he. All these politicians, and Machiavelli, are, I think, wrong. But Machiavelli's adamantine pessimism is so alluring that to find good arguments in favour of thinking hard, being serious and governing well, we're almost forced to return to his predecessors, the Renaissance humanists, who are the subjects of a recent masterpiece by Harvard historian James Hankins, titled Virtue Politics. As Geoffrey Collins observed in his TLS review, Hankins's book is perhaps the greatest study ever written of Renaissance political thought. It shows, with erudition, diligent scholarship and great intelligence, how the Renaissance humanists, beginning with Petrarch, became convinced that the viciousness and lawless violence of 14th century Italy was not, as previous thinkers had suggested, a problem that could be solved through drafting better laws. Instead, they argued that the eight centuries of peace, stability and unity under the Romans were a reflection not of that state's laws, but of the moral qualities of its rulers. Therefore, the way to save Italy was to educate a new generation of politicians in the classical Roman tradition, forming eloquent, educated and honest leaders who would live, in the words of Cicero, not just for themselves, but for their friends, family and country. These ideas were developed over the next 150 years, and by the second half of the 15th century, the Renaissance humanists' claim that good government required virtuous men seemed triumphantly vindicated. The humanists may have struggled to change the character of Italian princes, but they had the opportunity to live out their values as prime ministers, ministers and chancellors all over Italy, and in the case of Aeneas Silvius Piccolomini as Pope. Italy entered an unprecedented four decades of peace and prosperity. The civil wars were forgotten, and the Italians led Europe in finance, in art – this was the prime of Andrea Mantegna and Sandro Botticelli – and in war. 
This project had comical moments, as when Petrarch had himself crowned with a laurel wreath by a senator in a traditional ceremony on Rome's Capitol Hill, a scene somewhat reminiscent of a historical reenactor swinging a gladius at a tourist on Hadrian's Wall. And in 1494, the project suffered a humiliating collapse when the virtuous politicians were swept from power by invading French armies, convincing the young Machiavelli of the futility and naivety of advocating consistent moral dealings in public life. But the Renaissance humanists were not naive. They had built their arguments for virtue in politics out of intense practical experience. Forethinkers stand out. Poggio Bracciolini, who lived from 1380 to 1459, who rediscovered in distant monasteries the lost masterpieces of Lucretius and Vitruvius. George of Trebizond, 1395 to 1486, a commentator on classical philosophy and grammarian. Bishop Francesco Patrizzi, 1529 to 1597, and Leon Battista Alberti, 1404 to 1472. Gymnast, equestrian, courtier, scientist, mage, comic playwright, cryptographer, musician, architect, and more. All had direct political experience. Poggio and George of Trebizond as chief secretaries to popes, Alberti as a member of the papal court, and Patrizzi as the governor of a papal state. Such experience made them very conscious of the brutal unfairness of politics and the centrality of luck and timing and as professional orators, they were painfully aware of the importance of charisma and emotions in public communication, and they understood that lies were often more digestible than truth. Their arguments were not in favour of Christian saintliness, but for the more practical virtue of the best pagan Romans. Despite their extraordinary minds and achievements, these men are tough to study. Their political writings have never been translated into English and are thick with classical quotations and intricate rhetorical technique, all expressed in Ciceronian Latin. It is only Hankins's tireless exploration of forgotten documents, one of the key political works of Patrizzi exists in only eight manuscripts, and extraordinary endeavours of editing, translation and exposition that allow us to reconstruct, almost for the first time in 550 years, their three compelling arguments for why a strong moral character and habits of truth are vital for governing well. Yet they're as relevant to contemporary democracy in Britain and in the United States as to Machiavelli. First, the humanists reject the later Machiavellian idea that the purpose of politics is the acquisition of power. For the humanist, a politician who rises by being virtuous only when the cost is low, or as a way of impressing the public, cannot achieve honourable glory. Indeed, a politician who sacrifices integrity for political success ruins the very fame they seek and loses the dignity necessary to sustain them through the misfortune, errors and shabbiness that define all political lives. Second, and perhaps most crucially, the humanists grasp that the attributes developed through an obsession with acquiring power erode the very qualities required to use that power well. In Hankins's paraphrase of Poggio, Performing the violent and coercive acts a princeps must do to maintain his power has the effect of brutalising his character and makes him impervious to counsel. For Patrizzi, telling people only what they want to hear and excluding other views undermines everyone's ability to reason. It drives them mad, 
So, while Machiavelli and his successors hope that dishonest habits of thought, speech and action are masks, which can be dropped at will, the humanists realise that these masks are adhesive and corrosive, permanently injuring their wearer's capacity to govern. This problem is rarely discussed by political scientists, perhaps because, like Petrarch's predecessors, they prefer to ignore political character and instead focus on constitutional structures. Theirs is the tradition of James Madison, who argued in the Federalist Papers, published in 1788, that the public can be protected from bad politicians by a separation of powers and it is shared by some contemporary scholars, who may be more sceptical about Madison's constitution, but still believe that future Trumps might be prevented by introducing a better party system, and by others who imply that the populist style can be countered through more equitable economic development. It is more common to find analysis of how the life and practices of working politicians erode their character in newspapers than in universities. be more from this TLS long read from Noah after a short interlude. And we are happy to announce the return of the exclusive TLS subscription offer, exclusive that is, to our podcast listeners. For just £5 or $5 or the equivalent in whatever currency you use, you will receive six issues of the TLS and that's print and digital. So you'll have the paper turning up on your doorstep every week where you'll find all the pieces we've talked about on this podcast alongside dozens of other pieces as well as getting access to everything online and in the app edition, should you find yourselves waiting for a bus without your print issue handy. The digital access also includes the website and app archives and the historical archive, which goes back to 1902. So you can look up Walter de la Mare and T.S. Eliot and read what Virginia Woolf made of D.H. Lawrence, Joseph Conrad and Aldous Huxley. There's original writing by Roland Barthes, Saul Bellow, John Updike, Muriel Spark, Chinua Achebe, Patricia Highsmith, Umberto Eco and Susan Sontag and poems by Hardy, Auden Frost, Plath, Larkin, Brodsky, Paul Muldoon and Anne Carson. So there's really quite a lot to be getting on with. Go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod to take up this offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. My central experience as a working politician was one of mental and moral corrosion. My colleagues and I on both sides of the House of Commons developed through permanent election campaigns habits, qualities and values that, by weakening our sense of integrity and moral authority, discredited us with the public and civil servants. Living the lives of politicians also atrophied our capacity for imaginative sympathy and moral judgment, and eroded our ability to grasp rapidly changing contradictory information. Sometimes it felt as if the job were reshaping the very neural pathways of my brain, innovating the qualities I required to act responsibly in the cabinet room. Governing was about critical thinking. Politics was not. While critical thinking required humility, British politics demanded absolute confidence. In place of reality, it offered untethered hope. Instead of accuracy, vagueness. While critical thinking required scepticism, open-mindedness and an instinct for complexity, politics demanded loyalty, partisanship and slogans. Not truth and reason, but power and persuasion. This seemed particularly evident in the poor early response to COVID-19. Information about the virus in February 2020 was complex and contradictory. Lockdown seemed difficult, expensive, controversial and possibly futile and some senior public health experts favoured herd immunity. It was therefore tempting for the British government to refuse to lock down in early March and assert that in doing so they were simply deferring to the chief medical officer Chris Whitty. Their approach seemed the opposite of Donald Trump's mockery of his chief medical adviser, Anthony Fauci. But neither Trump's rejection of the science nor Johnson's following the science was a responsible approach to governing. Relevant expertise about COVID was often narrow. An expert on viral load was not an expert on closing schools. Scientists disagreed, and many suggested it was difficult, if not impossible, to get a vaccine in place by the end of the year. Making the correct decisions, therefore, required a leader who established a relationship with the experts, listening to them and challenging them respectfully. But it also demanded moral reasoning because the most fundamental decisions were ethical, how to balance liberty, prosperity, society and safety, and how to think through our very different obligations to the frail elderly, workers and schoolchildren. Such decisions were therefore not purely technocratic, they relied on character and political responsibility. Ministers in Taiwan or South Korea, and to some extent Angela Merkel in Germany, demonstrated that this approach could be taken and indeed suggested that there may still be scope for something like virtue politics in a world dominated by Machiavellian populism. But in Britain, as the Prime Minister's former chief adviser Dominic Cummings has explained, Boris Johnson failed to challenge key assumptions and pose difficult questions. Why are other countries responding differently? What if it were possible to produce a vaccine in 2020? What will be the impact of delaying lockdown on hospitals? He did not dispel the British illusion that we knew better than East Asia. He was unable to overcome the inertia and discomfort with rapid radical decisions. 
He was too slow to lock down in March and mishandled many of the key decisions in the spring and summer of 2020. This reflected the very worldview that he and Cummings had fostered in the Brexit referendum and the 2019 election. Those campaigns had preferred slogans to complex arguments, were contemptuous of expertise, at ease with untruths and untested measures, and had dismissed people who argued for prudence or explored uncomfortable facts. As Laura Kunzberg's BBC interview with Cummings showed in July 2021, there was a grotesque inconsistency between Cummings's willingness to work with Johnson to mislead, purge colleagues, prorogue Parliament, break international treaties and more, and his dream of better government. And his seven-hour parliamentary testimony in May on the failures of the UK Covid response was both a powerful argument in favour of moral character and seriousness in politics and an argument against his own electoral and political techniques. This, however, was only the most public example among the repeated failures to think clearly and consistently that I witnessed as an MP and then a minister, from the military interventions in Afghanistan and Syria, to attempts to tackle prison violence, to development in Nigeria, to flood response in Cumbria and the UK's response to Ebola. Third, and finally, the humanists' vision of human nature challenges that of Machiavelli. For the humanists, as for Aristotle, every aspect of the way we perceive and use the world reflects the fact that the human species is naturally social, cooperative and often altruistic. And unlike those of any other animal, our cooperative relationships can be formed on the basis of ideas of what is noble, beautiful, fine or good. Pursuing such ideas in a partnership between citizens in the context of a state is fundamental to being human. In George of Trebizond's words, we can no more imagine an unpolitical man than an invisible man. The humanists are not moral relativists. They believe that some values are better than others. Bishop Patrizzi believed, for example, that the state should provide free universal education for its citizens. All concluded that nobility of soul can be achieved by anyone from any background. But this does not mean that the humanists believe, as did the ancient Greek philosophers, that there is a single vision of the good life. George of Trebizond in particular insists, judgments differ, they cannot be a common good or ultimate end for everyone. And this reflects the experience of a man who admired the Ottoman Empire, and whose family originally came from a place nearer Turkmenistan than Tuscany. This pluralist ethical vision of the world implies a particular moral character in the humanists' politics, different certainly from Machiavelli, but also from Plato. The humanists' perspective is egalitarian. If all of us have, at least within reasonable limits, ideas about the world that are worth considering, and also have different information, experiences and interests, and one might add equal rights and dignity, then the partnership between politicians and citizens should feel more like an open-ended conversation between equals, closer to the type of partnership you might see in a family. Humanist politics, therefore, demands debating ideas in the right way and being generous to views that may not be fully articulated. It demands humility, moral imagination and empathy. Like any good relationship in a family or business, it requires truthfulness. And the humanists imply that a politics that is not a joint exploration of ideas and moral values in this way is not politics at all, but instead a blasphemy against what it means to be human.
Some of this may seem unfair to Machiavelli, who has been repeatedly rehabilitated as everything from a truth-teller to a lover of republican liberty. Max Weber, for example, portrays the Machiavellian politician as a romantic, violent, tragic hero, wrestling at the conscious cost of his soul with the ethics of responsibility. Isaiah Berlin seems tempted to present him as an English utilitarian, choosing the actions that contributed to the greatest happiness of the greatest number. Both feel that Machiavelli's bracing worldly pragmatism is the only realistic perspective set against an unworldly Christian virtue. More recently, Michael Walser has followed Machiavelli in arguing that politics is a world apart, in which politicians are justified in breaking moral rules to achieve larger political ends. And Lauro Martinez, in a review of Alexander Lee's Life of Machiavelli, suggests that the Machiavellian approach is almost the only counteractant fit to deal with the horrors of political instability. Such interpretations and the tensions between Machiavelli's arguments in his book titled The Prince, which I have emphasised here, and those in The Discourses, are sufficient to sustain another five centuries of competing interpretations. But Machiavelli is far less scrupulous than his modern defenders wish to acknowledge. He had none of the anxieties of a consequentialist philosopher, no interest in measuring the precise costs against the benefits of a crime or in wrestling with the uncertainty of consequences. Rather than worrying, like Weber, about the tragic contradiction between private and political virtues, Machiavelli, in his writings, rarely seems to feel that politicians face any tragic choices at all. Instead, they simply respond to necessita, meaning necessity. They act, or rather react, because they must, are forced to, are obliged to, or, in Italian, conviene, debi, forzato, costretto, bisognado. Fundamentally, Machiavelli and his successors today see politics as an inconsistent universe, which requires politicians to act inconsistently. And this is morally wrong, because the hallmark of virtue is consistency. Trustworthy people are forced to keep promises consistently over time. Integrity requires consistency between your actions, statements and beliefs. Justice requires you to treat others consistently over time. Good people do not just seem good, they are good. Their inner self and outward image are consistent. This does not mean that, in politics or any human life, you cannot get ahead by behaving badly. But this is a choice, not, as Machiavelli implies, a necessity. The inconsistent whirligig of politics no more necessitates inconsistent behaviour than standing on a merry-go-round requires you to spin on the spot. In fact, in an environment where everything else is moving, there is merit in standing still. And the corrosive impact on body and soul of the Machiavellian life is, as the humanists argue, extreme. Do not envy the politician whose flaws of moral character bring him success in the polls, the dishonest methods he's used to acquire power have trapped him in a false and destructive relationship with citizens and self, antithetical to the most fundamental features of democracy and of humanity itself. Perhaps the strongest argument against Machiavelli and Dominic Cummings is embedded in a brass plaque in the floor of Westminster Hall that my former colleagues cross daily on their way to the House of Commons. It refers not to an Italian, but to an English Renaissance humanist. It records the spot on which the Latin scholar and Lord Chancellor Thomas More was condemned to death in 1535 because he would not compromise for the king. 
The ethical value of Moore's life lies less in what he achieved, said or did, and more in what he refused to do. Ultimately, for Moore and for the other humanists, politics is an activity that requires not the perpetual campaign for power, but instead the possibility of resignation and refusing power. It is a vocation whose value can only be judged at its ending. You've been listening to The TLS. This was When the Flawds Succeed by Rory Stewart from the issue of August the 20th, 2021. It was read by Les Smith for Noah. Thank you for listening. You'll find more audio articles on the TLS website as well as in the NOAA News Over Audio app. And we are happy to announce the return of the exclusive TLS subscription offer, exclusive that is, to our podcast listeners. So there's really quite a lot to be getting on with. Go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod to take up this offer. And don't forget to listen and subscribe to our weekly show with me and Lucy Dallas. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89 percent off usps and ups make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with stamps.com use code program for a special offer That's stamps.com, code program.